The interviews in this podcast, all of which are ultimately uplifting stories of human transformation, may contain general discussions of depression, trauma, violence, abuse, or cultural and racial bias. On this episode of Shift Shift Bloom, during the therapies, there would be, I can remember, name five zoo animals, and it's like, well, this is silly, I can name five zoo animals, and they would say, well, just humor us then, and names them, just write them down, and, you know, write tractor and spider and just things that obviously had nothing to do with the zoo. Then later, just being so surprised that two weeks ago, I didn't know that a tractor was not a zoo animal. Michelle McFadden's drive and keen intelligence helped her succeed in a male-dominated industry and as an endurance athlete, until, in a split second, a traumatic brain injury changed her entire life. Today, she shares the story of an ongoing physical and cognitive rehabilitation that impacts every aspect of her humanity. I'm Kristen Sorelli, and you're listening to Shift Shift Bloom, a podcast about how people change. My guest today is Michelle McFadden, a rescue dog mom and advocate, accomplished home chef, and former IT professional who grew up in small town Missouri, the seventh of nine children. She met her husband, Dr. Morris Manring, when they were both working at the University of Missouri and they married in 1995. In 2009, a job took them to Columbus, Ohio, where they still live today. On the morning of March 12th, 2015, just a short distance from her house, McFadden was struck by a car as she was walking to work. The driver did not stop. She's here today to share the story of what came next. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you, Chrissy. I wanna give the listeners a little context because I know everyone will want to hear about the accident and the aftermath, but you were really active. Um, physically active prior to the accident. You were a runner. Yeah, I was a, uh, my passion, I guess, was distance running in particular. Even as I aged, I continued that activity. It was sort of like who I was, and for a large part, that was my identity. You ran marathons? I did run marathons. I actually like wow. training for marathons long, much more than I like actually competing in the marathons. Wow. So, so prior to the accident, about how many miles were you running a week? I think at that, by that point it had dropped significantly. So 50 to maybe 70. Wow. Still a lot. So I guess everybody, you've probably been asked this before, but do you remember anything about the actual accident? I do not. I don't remember uh, even the prior evening. Apparently, I had gone to dinner with friends and drove them home, I believe. But I don't, I don't really remember that. And I, I can't say that I remember the day before, I, you know, that whole day. Are you, do you have feelings about that? Are you grateful that you don't remember the incident itself? Oh, I don't know if grateful, but I suppose, <laughs> I suppose, I don't know how that would have changed anything. I, in some sense, I suppose, yeah, it's, it was good not to know that somebody just sort of left you and for whatever reason, you know, that they just left you and that stayed. And it was a rush hour. So there was quite a bit of traffic on the street at that time, and they got, they interviewed two drivers that stopped. Wow. What is the very first thing you remember post-accident? The first thing I remember was at least a week after the incident and briefly being in a pool of, wet and blood um, and then 
<clears throat> being lifted up and then nothing then for another day after that. So that was the very first time and that was a fall uh, that apparently I got up out of bed, uh, presumably to use the restroom given the fluid on the floor and that didn't work so well. I, I suppose I didn't realize I didn't know how to walk anymore. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, yeah, apparently, immediately after that, of course, down to the CT. And that's when I was living, I was in a rehabilitation hospital at that point. So I don't remember any of that. What does your family tell you about that time in the ICU? What does Morris tell you, your sisters, your brothers? My sisters have told me that I was rather combative, uh, verbally combative. And my husband tells me I just wouldn't stop talking. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think, uh, I think there was a decision on the, the part of at least the medical team that I should be, uh, I should have a coma induced because all of that activity to talk and uh, interact with people and things was preventing my brain from uh, any healing whatsoever. Wow. And so were you in a medically induced coma? I was. And I don't, to be honest, I don't know for how many days. There uh -huh. was a, a hemorrhage in the frontal lobe, I guess. Okay. And it was pretty severe every uh, medical professional that I've seen that looks at the chart has told me that it was a very severe injury and that where that occurred is usually results in total unrecoverable things like movement and movement yes primary motor skills expressive language managing higher executive functions like planning, organizing, self-monitoring, also problem-solving, impulse control, social interactions, exercising judgment, using abstract reasoning, creativity, memory, and emotions. There are two important things of note here. The first is that Michelle's injury is to the frontal lobe, the thing that houses all the stuff that makes us uniquely human. The frontal lobe is the newest part of our brain from an evolutionary standpoint, and it's the last to develop, so it's both highly malleable and extremely vulnerable to damage. Second thing is that a medically induced coma is not a common procedure, even though you see it every week on television shows. The purpose is to give the brain time to heal, but it's usually a last resort when other options for reducing brain swelling or a brain bleed have failed. When I hear the term medically induced coma, I'm really scared. So I wondered how the people around Michelle who had to make this decision for her were feeling. To be honest, there's so much that I've, just by denial, um, I just haven't asked, I guess, and they haven't offered, and, and maybe that's, maybe that was good for the time, and maybe that's good for the time, the person I've become that, you know, it's, it's hard to go back and relive some of this. So when you are, when you come out of the coma and they, they bring you to rehab, at this point, what are the doctors telling you about the brain injury and about the prognosis? So I don't recall ever them ever uh, talking about it. Uh, with me. There was a doctor that would make his rounds every day and he would come in and he would just ask me how I was feeling as much as I can recall. Uh, he would ask me how I was feeling and how I was doing and but that was really it and he always had a gaggle of students with him <laughs> and I, I would try like I would see them outside the door and I would try and listen and I'm sure I heard things but I could not understand any of it or process any of it. Jill Bolte-Taylor, in her book, uh, My Stroke of Insight, she writes about having this sort of out-of-body experience. Well, first, while she's having the stroke, and then while she's those first few days in recovery, 
Do you recall having anything like that where you, you're kind of watching yourself? I, I don't per se, and her book was very inspiring for me to, to mm. read, and I probably read it in the, maybe the first year of re- rehabilitation from this. And I was just fascinated that she had that experience and that she could recall that experience. And most of my experiences that are like that are have to do with this odd sort of vertigo that I have had, even in the beginning, just where I just feel like I'm floating and I'm above things. And I'm, I just feel like I'm floating above and I'm watching, you know? <laughs> and I'm, houses are, instead of me walking past a house, the houses are going past me. They're coming toward me. And that's, wow. That's just bizarre. It's just so strange. And that still happens to this day. To this day, yes. Wow. Very, it's very scary and difficult. But I, so to, to, to Dr. Bolt's, uh, Taylor's point is that I can shut that down. I can, when I drive, I have to be very uh, focused on and trust myself and focus so that that is not happening, that those cars aren't Mm. going backwards. Like a car is, I'm on a four lane highway and we're all driving east and I have to concentrate really hard to say that this car that just passed me is not coming back towards me because that did happen in the beginning and I could not drive at all. Um, wow. So that, that still happens a little bit, but I can, I can control that or I just trust myself or I just focus on a point. And as long as I focus on it, I shut everything else out. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go, let's go back to uh, rehab. And what was the first focus? Was it getting you to walk? Was it, was it language? What was your day-to-day like in rehab? Okay, so I would have a schedule, and they would bring it to me with my breakfast. And so they'd have, I went through uh, physical therapy, obviously, cognitive therapy, um, and another kind of therapy, and I can't remember the, what they called it, kind of more activities of daily, having to do with activities uh, of daily. Occupational? Yeah. So it just depended on which one I did first in a given day, but all of the therapists were just so amazing, but uh, the, it was very hard. And in the beginning, I would be so tired that I just didn't want to go. And I remember one day in particular just being so tired and not getting up and not going and the next thing I know my husband is coming in the room and he's sitting behind me and he's or besides me and he's saying you have to get up and go and I I was just so tired I don't want to go I don't want to go and it turns out that he had been advised that she needs to go to therapy because if she doesn't they will potentially give her bed to somebody else. They will discharge her if she's not going to continue with these types of therapy, which, you know, was a huge concern because if you can't walk, (laughs) you know, what are you going to, you're going to bring this person home and they're not going to be able to walk and do anything. So yeah, I I guess walking, number one, was a thing. And also um, speech, the activities of daily living that had to do a lot of times with sequencing like you have to put your socks on before you put your shoes on and you know we're all we're all there trying to do it and it's like it just don't make any sense you know yeah I mean many of these things or you know they take you you, we're gonna do laundry now or whatever whatever it was and no, they have to go in the washer first. These clothes are, are wet. They have to go in the dryer. You can't fold the clothes while they're wet. And mm. I found a, uh, I guess, in anticipation of speaking to you today, I went through some emails, which I had stayed away from. 
I didn't want to look at from that period of time. And I found some emails where people describe uh, me being in the hospital and what it was like and having come, maybe come and see me. And I, I don't actually remember people coming or if they did, they would be there and I would apparently be nice and then they would leave and I would ask somebody, who was that? <laughs> because I, like, why are they here? Or yes. why did they come here? But d- during the therapies, there would be, especially on the cognitive side, I can remember name, name five zoo animals and it's like, well, this is silly. Why are you asking me to name five zoo animals? I can name five uh-huh. zoo animals. And they would say, well, just humor us then and name some. Just write them down. You know, we know yeah. you know, but just write them down. And, you know, writing tractor and spider and just things that obviously had nothing to do with the zoo as an animal anyway. And <laughs> then later just being so surprised that, wow. Two weeks ago, I didn't know that a tractor was not a zoo animal, but mm-hmm. now I know what a tractor actually is and what do you use a tractor wow. for. And maybe that spoke to the plasticity, they call it, of the brain and its ability yes. to rebound. How long did it take you to relearn how to walk? Were you walking by the time you went home? I was walking by the time I went home. In mm-hmm. fact, I was climbing stairs. I would, I, rem- I remember being bound and determined to climb the stairs. And going up was always pretty good. Coming down was absolutely terrifying. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I was I was able to even bathe myself for the most part. I could do all of those things, which is good because I have stairs in my house here. You have and- spiral stairs in your house. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, the people always comment on that. And to me, they were much preferable because when you're on a spiral, you you can only see the step in front of you. Okay. For me, it seemed that was important is just one step at a time. And you're just taking the step and you're not, maybe I wasn't getting overwhelmed because there were so many steps. And plus I had two points of contact. I lost a lot of what's called proprioception when that incident occurred. And and so I still bobble because I still have an issue with proprioception. But those stairs, I had the center column I could always have a hand on and then the, mm. the rail on the stair itself. So I, to me, that seemed preferable wow. <laughs> to navigate than just the regular stairs. Do you remember the PT for walking? Like, were you on a treadmill? Were you with a walker? So when I was in the inpatient hospital, the rehabilitation hospital, I always had a belt on and somebody with me. Um, Mm. And they would hold the belt and then I would walk, but I could touch them if I needed to touch them. Or I, I kept trying to grab the belt because I think, uh, you know, in hindsight, that appears to be that third point of contact that I needed. So instead of having a stick or a cane or something, I could touch that belt. So that, and I'm sorry, what was that? If you remember the the sort of PT around walking, and if you were on a treadmill, and were you with a walker? So they would take us uh, into corridors and put little cones. And so we'd be doing the weave poles like the dogs, when you see dogs in competition. (laughs) And so we'd have to weave, or they'd put little short ones little tiny maybe a foot uh, or less than a foot tall and they'd just be in your way um, all the way in this very narrow corridor and you're you were supposed to just either get them out of the way or step over them okay you'd have to do whatever you needed to do then later in outpatient therapy they would put me on a treadmill and they'd put me in something I would call a Johnny jump up like little babies, okay. even little babies in. 
and <clears throat> string me from the it was string strung from the ceiling I guess sure. so I would be in this and then they'd put me on the treadmill and they would have a person on each leg and then a person behind me holding my hips and that was to <clears throat> I had pretty severe delay on the left side of my body and okay. so it was to teach me the coordination of hand movements with leg movements mm. So the two people on the legs, their job was to make sure that the legs were moving in prop appropriately and that my hands were, that I could move my hands appropriately. Wow. A couple of things come up for me when you describe this. It's like, wow, as you said, these people are amazing, <laughs> the work that they do. Are you, you, you mentioned you were bound and determined to walk. You were also a really independent person prior to the accident. So, how, like, how is this having people on your legs and hips and moving you? I mean, does it bring up feelings? Does it bring up? That is the thing that brings up the gratitude is that there are ah. people out there that are willing to do that. And that, as a matter of fact, that I've changed enough through this experience to accept that help. I think that is. Ah. The biggest thing for me is being able to accept that. Not your way of being in the world prior to the accident? No, it would, no, uh uh. I, I mean, I think I just grew up, you know, every uh, child for themselves. And if you want something to happen, you have to make it happen. And so very independent. And, but I, I've learned, I have learned to be different now. Mm. <laughs> Well, runners, it's not fair to paint everyone with the same brush, but runners, I think especially sort of long distance runners, they do tend to be lone wolves. You know, it's their race. You're running your own race and you you, you don't have help. <laughs> you're not playing a team sport. So it sounds like the physical part of your recovery, at least with walking, went relatively quickly when you like kind of look back over the timeline, if you were only, you know, in the rehab for three or four weeks and you're home walking, that, that sounds like it went quickly. Were there other things that didn't go as quickly? Yeah, I think just a processing, just being able to take in information and, and then even knowing what to do with it, but certainly being able to understand it um, without a doubt, one of the most difficult things has been reading and comprehending what I've read. And I've only in the last year, so this has been going on six years, and mm -hmm. just in the last year, I could read, say, an entire paragraph in a book and understand it. Were you a big reader before? I was. I was. So the the walking the walking came quickly. The reading and the comprehension not so much. What about your verbal skills? You you mentioned also what before we started that you might have moments of aphasia. Could you could you explain what that means to the listener and what your particular type of aphasia causes? It's uh usually uh just not being able to find a word. And mm -hmm. Many, many people suffer from this, and, and everybody over the age, I would say, any, any woman <laughs> over the age of 60. <laughs> you don't need a traumatic brain injury to have aphasia. <laughs> and it's so funny because people go, oh, Michelle, uh, now you're just like the rest of us, you know. <laughs> um, but it it's, can be uh, really debilitating to be, say, in the middle of a sentence and... It just, you can't find the word. And then for me, on top of that, after I can't find the word, I completely forget. I lose track of what we were even talking about. And yeah. there's this idea that, not an idea, but the reality of now being so overstimulated by noise and movement and if. I'm at a social event and there are a lot of people, I can't track conversations and that still happens today. It's, I have to be pretty careful. But um, so the, 
the brain surgeon who never actually did surgery on me that I saw after I had been released from the hospital. I saw him a couple of times and he told me that my brain would figure out how to do things and no one will notice this in me. And I think that's true because I, you know, I've mentioned that I can't feel, I don't have feeling in my hands or the bottom of my feet, but I can walk. Um, yeah. I can't feel my hands, but I can cook. And I, I can still, I mean, cooking has so much to do with the tactile, you know, touching something and getting yeah. that feedback on, you know, whether it's rising dough or you're, you know, just mixing veg with your hand or whatever. And so somehow, yeah, I've figured out that things that that I'm able to accomplish things as as I had before the uh, injury. Do the doctors are they basically saying to you it's going to be trial and error? Like there are things you can learn to do, but we don't know necessarily what those things are. You're going to have to figure them out. What's the learning curve on all of this stuff? Yeah, I think mostly it's in the beginning. They said you know you just have to learn to accept that there's only so much. Uh, and I do believe it's true that you never recover from a from a brain injury. You can rehabilitate to a certain point, but you're never going to recover. Without saying you're just going to have to accept who you are, uh, which I don't think they would ever do, but that you do have to understand that there will be things that you can accomplish and that you may not regain all memory, you may not regain all, all, all sense of movement or where you fit in the world, but that you can try. And there's no reason that you have to stop trying. Yeah, you're older woman, you know, I'm in my 60s now, and if this had happened um, to a 12-year-old, their experience of rehabilitation it would be much different than It me. sounds like you're not allowed to say you had a traumatic brain injury, but that you always say, I have a traumatic brain injury because it's never fully yeah, yeah. healed? You know, Chris, it's a little, it's interesting. It's a, a little like uh, sometimes I think of people who have struggled with addictions of, of mm -hmm. one form or the other and how... Do they ever really recover from that? And you you hear that these terms like recovering alcoholic or you know, and do you ever recover that? Or that's such a part of your identity. This experience had been that you know it's always at least having had the experience is going to be a part of. Yeah, you. it changes your core identity. I guess it does. It really does. I want to talk about the senses with you because I know you as such. I met you, I think, about three years after. And, you know, one of my first experiences of you and then ever every experience since has has revolved around food and the amazing food that you make. And And Dr. Taylor talks about this in her book, too, about sort of a um, changing relationship with each of her five senses or six, if you want to call intuition or a sense. But talk to me about your senses. What's it like now? Well, the, I know the sense of any, any of the senses just seem to be dull mm. in the beginning. So not really having taste and a sense of smell, even no feeling in the hands. And just sort of, I don't know, like that that part of me was not there for so long, maybe. And then little by little, just <laughs> just needing to, uh, for instance, the hands, this, this, this situation with my hands coming home and somebody sitting the computer in front of me and I'm like, oh, yes, oh, I'll check my email or whatever it, I think I'm going to do. And I'm going to respond to this email. And it's like, well, well, what are these little things on the computer? And then and then go, oh, it's a keyboard. Okay, I get that. And I know my hands are supposed to be on the keyboard and I can move them. It just did not work. I, I just could not make my fingers move. Even though I had gone through some things, even in outpatient therapy, where they'd give me uh, the golf sticks. What are those little golf sticks that the 
you put a ball on it and then somebody has a <laughs> oh um like oh, a tea. Um, like a yeah. tea uh, is that it called uh, a tea? i know what you mean <laughs> i know what you mean <laughs> yeah these little sticks and they would have me put them in holes yes. you know and how oh my gosh that was so hard and just having the stick and then seeing the hole i, I was just really focusing on that hole by god i was going to get that tea and that stick that stick and that hole and it was just, oh it was so hard also you know buttoning a shirt any of those fine motor skills then on top of the senses so that's magnified that or made that seem wow is this how it's going to be from now on, you know, in yeah. the beginning? But slowly over time, all of those things have improved dramatically. And my ability to, like I said, cook, I can tell you what it feels like right now. Like a giant man with big hands has come to shake my hand huh. and he's huh. squeezing it really hard. So it feels dumb or like sometimes when you get, you go to the dentist and they give you a shot and all yes, of a sudden yes. your face feels like it's huge. Yeah. They yes. feel like that. And you would never think that you could make them work or do anything. The smell, and I don't think I ever had real acute smell, but it's so far improved and the taste is definitely much improved. Just, uh, but really only in the last couple mm. of years. When did you start to cook again? When I got home, my sister was here, I can remember, and we would go in the kitchen together and she would help me get the pan out and because everything was so heavy. So yes. even like this cell phone is would be something that would be so heavy I wouldn't be able to hold it but just scrambling an egg that was the first thing I did okay um, but but yeah pretty pretty much straight up and then as time went on I can remember wanting to make something more complicated like ravioli uh -huh. Which took uh -huh. using machine. <laughs> I mean, it was it was like serious therapy. It was like getting this machine out and figuring out. I mean, it was like all day. It was probably six or seven hours just to get the machine set. Because up. you mentioned having problems, trouble with sequencing. Sometimes was it different different for you as a as a cook? I. I don't know that I could remember it or not. I went through a little exercise like that during the inpatient uh, part uh -huh. of my stay in the hospital, and it was disastrous. <laughs> and <laughs> But I think that's why, in fact, it took me so long to get this machine set, set up. But once that was, once I had it set up, I was okay. Like, I don't know why, why that, I just seemed more natural that here's flour and the eggs have to go in it and and maybe that was an easy give that I didn't you know pasta is so easy you just have flour and water and uh -huh. maybe you have egg with it so something simple like that was okay but yeah I don't after I got home I don't really recall it having any major obstacles for cooking with sequencing wow I would turn I have become an obsessive checker of things like the burner being on to this day okay i mean they really they really put the fear of god in you when you're in the inpatient and doing all that therapy do you think there's an intuitiveness to you as a cook that you couldn't shake or the brain injury didn't knock out of you i i think so christian i think there are a lot of things even though dr lonzer had said oh honey that's not really how it works just because you were real fit and real physically competent you've had a brain injury and it was pretty severe and you're gonna have to discover the new you which is in, isn't in fact true but as time has gone by I think yeah there must have been something in there that survived that that desire that can-do attitude and just I can do this and mm. I 
I don't need anybody's help, but actually I do need people's help. You know, my husband will see me dragging stuff around on the patio, you know, in that first year going, good, good Lord, let me do that for you. And it's like, no, uh-huh. I just need to move this brick, you know, over to this spot. And it'd take me like four hours, you know, to get to from one spot to the next. And oh. Is that a major change? Like life being really fast, I keep going back to you you know, doing, reading these computer languages and knowing these computer languages and, and having a sort of fast paced career. And now is life slower? It is slower. And back to Dr. Taylor, I feel like I've progressed enough now in my rehabilitation that I have to remind myself that I should stay slow. I should keep things Mm. slow and not let them speed up. And in that sense, the first thing that happens when I start speeding things up is the aphasia kicks in. And also, it's still hard to be with people and understand everything they're saying. But if if you, if you know people who begin speaking before someone else has finished speaking, or they begin speaking without thinking about what they're going to say and they haven't fully formed their... That seems to be the road that I'm headed down if I don't, if I don't mm. slow it down. That mm. I haven't really thought carefully about what I'm saying, which I did early on in the in the injury, and now time has gone by, and I'm I'm trying to I feel like I'm trying to catch up, you know, <laughs> and I want to catch up, and I want to be that person that can engage with other people, and so I'm going. I feel like maybe I'm going a little too fast, and mm. that I I need to step back and slow down again and, and keep it slow. And, one of my favorite books in the whole world is called In Praise of Slowness. And it's nonfiction. It's it's just a lot of research in different topics, like driving slower, moving slower, learning slower. And it's so convincing, uh, a missive on slowness and quality of life. So in a way, would you say that's been a positive? Has that, has that been a positive for you? Very much so. The most positive thing in the beginning of all is in, say, the first three years was being able just to just sit and look at a leaf blowing around the patio and trying to figure out what it is. And, you know, it's, a, yeah. it's just... Like everything's new. Like if you just slow down enough, everything can be new and and you can see it and not, you know, worry about knowing that it's a leak. How how have your relationships changed with people who are part of your day to day life? I think I'm more accepting of how those people are and a I'm grateful that they're they're here and I'm grateful for who they are you know in the past I'm sure because I was like this in my work life I was very demanding Mm. and, and well why do you have to be like that and why must you be so insistent or, you know, just always, there's always some little negative thing about it. And now it's, I'm just grateful that that they're there. And So are the feelings around the the cards that are in the box that are upstairs, is it fear? Is it, is it a sense of loss? Uh, I suppose it's, it's a bit of both. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting because I think in terms of loss, it's almost like the loss of having known who those people are is kind of my gain in that maybe I could see, if if I could see them, then I would really see who they are and not think about what they were like or what my relationship was like with them at the time. And I've thought about this for some of my 
coworkers, I can recall a couple of incidents and thinking, this person is so interesting and if I could just see them and outside of the context of who I knew them as before, primarily in my, in my work life. Mm. But yeah, fear, fear too in that. And I suppose the fear really is just tied up with that loss of, well, who, the fear of not knowing, knowing that that person was in my life and mm. may have had some import in my life. Yeah, when you talk about the leaf, it makes me think it would be so wonderful in a way to be on the receiving end of someone without expectations. You know, someone who's not bringing expectations of who we are or who we were to the table. Although I'm sure it's complicated because I'm sure there's an expectation maybe coming at you about, don't you remember me? Don't you remember this? How, you know, (laughs) don't you remember our connection? Don't you remember this inside joke? Um, But at the same time to sort of get a clean slate with someone um, could be pretty remarkable. What do you miss about about your life pre-TBI? Do you miss running? Do you miss working? Oh, yeah, I I definitely miss running. Mm. And I I don't really miss work itself. I but I miss the independence. Mm. And I miss being in control. <laughs> Cuz <laughs> I miss I miss knowing everything <laughs> because I knew everything. <laughs> and uh so I, I guess I do, I, I, I miss being in control. And when I was thinking about that, like what I miss the most, you know, was sort of, wow, this independence. And was it really the independence? You know, when I, I had a job and I could take care of myself. And mm-hmm. this uh, stems from childhood, always being, having to take care of knowing that, you know, by God, you're just going to take care of yourself. You're not going to rely on anybody else to do it. And so at first I thought, well, it was really the loss of gainful employment or the ability to have gainful employment. And then I realized, no, you know, really it's about control. It's about I don't have any, I don't feel like I have control over my life because I don't have as free a movement. And part of that does have to do with not having an income, no longer having an income, and yeah, I. Mm. Are you in acceptance about that? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I worried. I guess I can remember, prior to the injury, my baby sister was married to a man she was that she met at work and then she began to have children and so she didn't necessarily work outside the home and I thought how is that even possible uh-huh. <laughs> you know like I could not imagine yeah. not taking care of, you know financially being yep. able to take care of myself but I have come to one thing I have come to realize as this rehabilitation has gone on, is that what she says is true, which is her, an enormous contribution to the household, an enormous contribution to this joined life that she has with this man and these children, and that that in itself is just as important, if not more important, to the, the whole. So I have got to live that, and I have learned that she's right, and that is true. I can deeply relate to her feeling like I do not want to rely on someone else for my basic needs ever, because I have never, since I'm 20 years old, not had a job, not had my own source of income, and 
I prefer it that way. And I also bump up against judgmental feelings when I see, I guess, especially women who are able-bodied or able to work choose not to work. I don't even know, you know, how much of my own privilege comes up in that. Many of us equate money, financial security with emotional security, and they're not really related. As Michelle works through this and you hear her clarify her feelings and discover what they're really pointing to, you hear a person who has shed previous judgments, a person who used to judge her sister for a certain kind of life or lifestyle now has a completely different understanding of that, even though it's not necessarily something she's chosen. Do you ever equate or make a relationship between this change that we're talking about today? I think it's probably of the interviews I've done so far. This is the first one where this change has been thrust upon you, thrust upon a person so unwillingly or without engagement in the change. Do you think there was some, I don't know, Dr. Taylor talks about spirit. Do you think there was some some learning for you that couldn't have happened without this kind of dramatic change being thrust upon you? Uh, definitely. Even in terms of just, we were talking about uh, the job and gainful employment and a friend after the TBI had mentioned, well, but you didn't get to make that decision about leaving, like how relieved I was that I, but aren't you upset because you didn't get to be the one to make that decision? It's like, well, mm-hmm. there you go, control, right? That I, I was not in control of that process, but yeah, that, and I'm sorry, you'll have to say. Yeah, do, do you think there were things you couldn't have learned or ways you wouldn't have changed had this change not been thrust upon you? Yes. Some of it, I wonder if, without having had the injury, if time itself would have led me to a certain path, Uh you know? Because they always say, you know, as you age, you become a softer person, you become a more accepting person. And so perhaps that would have eventually changed, but I do know that one thing for sure that would have been extremely difficult for me to accomplish with time and or this TBI is, so I was headed down a path with uh, substance abuse prior alcohol, prior to the TBI, and suddenly that part of me, whether it's a compulsion or whatever Mm -hmm. led that, and my, I come from a, you know, a line of alcoholics, there's many alcoholics in my family, and also friends, and, but I have just zero desire. There's not, that compulsion is gone now and that is probably this has got to be one of the most positive (laughs) things that has happened with this brain injury is that somehow it just got turned off and I don't you know I don't advocate for others hey you know if you've got an issue <laughs> go stand in traffic for a while you know it's like <laughs> it does make you wonder about they they know so much and so little about the brain it does make you wonder what happened in your brain that that you don't have that desire anymore we, and you we we've heard of these stories of people who have detoxed from their addictions, medically been detoxed, been put under and detoxified. And how, okay, well, apparently in some form, (laughs) this was sort of a self- uh, Detox. uh, Yeah, because I don't know what that, I have no idea. 
because it's more it's more than just being going through a detoxification mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. then a change in you that says that well, I don't need this I don't know why mm-hmm. I thought I needed this to mm-hmm. have a good time why did I need this to feel better about myself or dull some pain that was there or whatever whatever it is the reason that people self-medicate mm-hmm. you know you and I have had a had a a glass or two of bubbly now and then. Tell me about things you enjoy. Oh, well, usually just sitting on the patio and looking at leaves blowing. <laughs> That's for sure. That's a big one right there. But, um, you know, cooking, obviously, being with my dogs. I mean, really enjoy in smaller groups of people, good conversation, especially with those people who are close to me know that I have a, you know, a limited uh, ability to process. And so they're willing to accept my foibles, my aphasia, my mixed up words, my, <laughs> my need to start and stop. Uh, that sort of thing, but really, everything is so new every day now, and that just sounds so trite, I know, but it's, you just wake up, and everything is, it is a whole new day out there, a whole new opportunity to either be really grouchy, (laughs) or be really happy, and see beauty and whatever it is that's in front of you and it's fine to have a day I I personally believe it's fine to have a day to to wake up and be really grouchy and just want to fold in a position and not speak and not see anybody and Mm -hmm. are you happier and more positive oh I'm definitely more positive (laughs) and I'd say yeah I have days when I am much more happy than because I've enjoyed those simple things, mm-hmm. you know, and before it was, what's the next thing I got to do? Mm-hmm. I found myself doing this on a walk the other day with, with my husband, speaking out loud of everything that I was going to do when I got home. And it's like, here we are on this walk. <laughs> Why am I doing this? And I think that's part of me just trying to, you know, I'm fighting this. Here's me in the past and here's me now. And the now person does not want to look forward. You know, don't look to the future. Mm-hmm, so, uh-huh. which is what the past person used to do all the time. And now I've become this. <laughs> it's like I'm begin- beginning to go the wrong direction here, Kristen. You know, this is, yeah, and she says this in her book, too, about having a moment, I think it's early on, though, in in My Stroke of Insight, where she says, there's a part of me that does not want to recover because I don't want to lose these positive things that have been brought to me as, as a result of this. And that's so interesting that the sort of old you creeps up yeah. And the new and you the new has you to has say, to. it's better this way. Um, it's better to live in the moment. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and especially, um, I think this is why I, I'm somewhat fortunate, it seems, to be the age I am mm-hmm. and to, to have a husband who is willing to financially support me and not have to go back into the workplace because mm-hmm. I think going back into the workplace would be constantly trying to be the person I was, that super confident, super capable, doing 27 things at once person. And I'm, I don't want to be that again. So. Yeah, I was going to ask you, and I do think this is part of it. It's like that do, do, doing, that do, doing and making the lists. And gosh, I'm there. I'm there so much. But it's I also recognize that it's cultural. And in a way, by not going back into the workforce and sort of 
having limits over what you can take in terms of stimulation has allowed you to kind of step back from the culture too and re-experience how much is enough or who you want to be, re reframe who you want to be. That seems like a gift. I'm just curious if fears pop up for you that didn't used to pop up, whether they be physical or some of some other nature. Like you mentioned driving, you know, I'm sure was really frightening at first and, and you do it now. So, so are there other, are there new little fear friends that, that have reared their heads through this process? There are, but I think, again, I think there are some of these fear friends that develop as a process of aging. Mm-hmm. Um, so physical movement you know, we have a little dusting of snow and it's not as, you know, I'm already challenged not being able to take stairs, go downstairs very well. And so carrying a little dog outside to try and convince that (laughs) they need to take care of their business and having to pick something up and go over snow or go over ice or go over some unfamiliar territory that's pretty frightening. It has also continued to be a challenge for me and a a fear of mine going into unknown uh, spaces Mm -hmm. and just, but I do force myself, you know, I'll force myself to, to meet someone new or, you know, I'm in social settings and Mm -hmm. so I will force myself to do it, but it's already, I'm on edge because I can't move physically. I I don't feel safe in this new space. So so those two things, I'm trying to think if they're, oh, it sounds. It's mm-hmm. almost like I have PTSD mm-hmm. with sound. So the dog barking, all the beeping. I constantly say this, how noise, noisy the world has become. Mm-hmm. So right now there is a car out there, probably a, a, a Amazon delivery truck, and it's backing up and it's making noise. Beep, 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 beep. And then we have a lot of uh, utility construction work going on, and there's drilling and banging and sawing, and it's just so. Uh, I mean, I can feel it. I uh, somehow I feel mm. this in my body. It begins shaking, and that's. I think that's new since mm. the TBI. Like a, like a hypersensitivity. Yes. Mm. Do you ever think about the driver? No, I don't. And I do get asked that from time to time. Mm. Um, did they ever get the guy, usually somebody will say. And then, so in the beginning when that happened, that, my first response would always be, how did you know it was a guy? But I know this is a figure of speech. Uh-huh. They weren't really meaning, but I, I don't because I don't know why that would help me to know who that was. I make up my own little story in my brain that, you know, is probably some little old lady who didn't know that <laughs> this body had, <laughs> that she yeah, had made contact yeah. with the body and that, it, you know. I think that sounds really healthy and helpful. It, it why, and why not? And why not? <laughs> yeah, I think... For my husband, it's very, you know, it's been very mm-hmm. upsetting to him because he knows that we would not have done that, that had we known. This is why I've chosen to, like, say it's some little old lady who just didn't yes. know. But that we would have stopped, that at least you have to stop. And I did, there was a incident reported in my neighborhood maybe, I don't know, two, three years ago someone was struck and they were in the they were in the same ICU area I was and so I had sent a note to that family and just you know I never heard from them I don't know if they received it Mm -hmm. Um, I sent it through the person who had posted the story and just said you know I'm so sorry and you know the hope is that that there's some improvement in during the rehabilitation. I don't I don't know. It was a young man, 
And I, I don't know what happened, but I felt like, oh, gosh. I don't know. Maybe I'm always looking for things like this. But to me, that sounds like even if you never go back into that box of cards, that's that that act is you paying forward all of that support that you got to someone else in a really beautiful and special way that only you can understand. Not many people have been through what you've been through. And now this young man gets, whether, like you said, he whether he read it or not, whether his family read it or not, it's like out there in the universe, that, that level of compassion and understanding and support. I love the way... Uh, Taylor, Dr. Taylor ends her book and she she writes about um, things that she needed, like 40 things she needed that she just wants people to know anyone who's going through this. I, I wonder, what do you, what do you need now? That I don't have already? Maybe, I to, maybe. <laughs> I need to continue to have the kind of support I've had mm. from my husband and my family and my friends. I definitely need that. Mm-hmm. And I need time and space. But I think I've always needed time and space because I am a little bit of a, I've always been a little bit of a, a loner kind of type person. Mm-hmm. I think you're so special. And I'm so glad you got to, I got to, I know you. I'm so glad you're in my life. And I'm so glad you said yes to doing this. Um, I want to give you a little bit of rapid fire questions, which just means say the first thing that comes to your mind before we finish. Um, Fill in the blank. Change requires blank. Awareness. Mm. I'm really curious what you're going to say about this one. If you could go back in time and change one thing about your past, what would it be? Mm. food what do you mean by that Mm. access to food Mm. (laughs) was food scarce when you were growing up because there were so many of you well I think it was really my uh, parents were alcoholics and so they were just never there and didn't really you know so food was we were just really hungry a lot And it is, it's the thing I really, you know, you worry about it in terms of your overall development. And yeah. Particularly yeah. how nutrition is just so important to yeah. The, this thing up here in particular. And then just that when you, when there seems to be a scarcity of food because of this neglect, right? So it's basically willful neglect of your children. Um, not to be there and not to feed them and not to protect them. That, wow, that food stands for so much. What is one thing, big or small, you would like to see change in the world? Healthcare Mm -hmm. system, because there are so many people who had this exact injury in the parts of the brain, these exact types of hemorrhages and disconnections as I did, and everybody responds to it differently, but I think a lot of that has to do with support and the ability to get the health care, and, you know, I had advocates because my family were advocating for me, so they were getting me the bed in the rehabilitation hospital, and they were making sure that I stayed there, and... It's kind of sad, the state of the state of the union here yeah. in terms yeah. of healthcare. Nothing is a perfectly fine answer to this next question, but what is one small or superficial thing you would like to change about yourself? My strength. Mm. Mm. How often do you change your toothbrush? Six months. Mm. Mm. There's no right answer, Michelle. That's fine. <laughs> it's like six months. It seems like I go to the dentist every six months, six months. Are you primarily a change maker, a change seeker, or a change resistor? Oh, 
Wow. Dang, used to be a resistor, I think. Now mm-hmm. I'm a seeker. That's a change. That's a huge and wonderful change. What does your next change look like? And feel free to be aspirational or imaginative or fanciful about that answer. Regaining my physical uh, competency, capability, but retaining all the other things about Mm. myself that changed since the brain injury. What would you say to someone who has had an unexpected change thrust upon them? Ask for help. Thank you, Michelle. Will you kiss your doggies for me? I will kiss my doggies for you. (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this. Shift Bloom is a co-production of TCOM Studios and Actually Quite Nice, engineered by Tim Fall, and hosted by me, Kristen Sorelli. Episodes are available wherever you download your podcasts and are made possible by listeners just like you. Please consider supporting our work by visiting us at patreon.com forward slash shift shift bloom. Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized, timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at pradefoundation.org and at tcomconversations.org. And by the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky. Online at iph.uky.edu.